Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this Lord's Day. We're thankful that you call us to you, that you do indeed forgive us of our sins and, and accept us, that you disciple us and train us, discipline us, um, give us your word, give us your bread and wine, and then make us into new creatures sent out to, to love our neighbors and to do your will. And we're thankful for this process that week in, week out, we can come to you, trusting that you will keep your promises to us. Help us to understand a little bit more about how we can imitate you in our home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is week three, final week. The first, three, the first two weeks, I'll just, I'm going to do a quick recap. If, if you haven't been here, I believe they are recorded. I know they're recorded. I don't know how to tell you how to find them, but they're somewhere in the, uh, somewhere in the TRC sphere online somewhere. I think YouTube or something. Um, but essentially, the first week, what I talked about was liturgy. And the idea of this class is that we, what we want to do is mimic the way, in our homes, mimic the way that God loves his children. So he loves us through the process of calling us to himself. And that's the first thing we talked about was the call to worship. Okay, God calls us to worship. Well, there's ways that we can use that in our home. We can mimic that. And then he calls us to confess our sins and he, and he loves us. He forgives us. And so I spent a lot of time last week on that, probably too much. Like I packed a lot of stuff in, but I just think that is such an important aspect of the home is confessing your sins regularly, not just confessing them when, when, um, a big thing happens, but a pattern of confession and quick repent, quick repentance Quick forgiveness in the home does far more than any of the kind of patterns we set up, even including like family worship, which all these things are important. Family worship, obviously prayer is absolutely vital. And the things I'll talk about today, the most important thing I would say is our identity. The call to, the, Caught up in the call to worship last week was this understanding that we don't choose who we are. We come in the, fam- in the same way that we come to God In the church family, because he calls us, he names us, he baptizes us. We are made Christian, not by our own power, but through the power of the spirit. In the same way, the home is like that. Like a home is not made up of a bunch of people that decided, hey, I'm going to, I think I'll attach myself to this family and then we'll, we'll do this thing over here. No, a family, children are brought into a family and they are, they are named, they are trained up. They, they don't, and I gave the example of like Peekaboo Street, you know, this example of how these uh, kind of modern parents try to uh, let their child name themselves. And of course, the child named so Peekaboo. But even they couldn't get around it because the reason the child named herself Peekaboo is because her parents played Peekaboo with her. 
And so it's, it's ridiculous to try to think that we, you know, like indoctrination doesn't happen. So we want to do it the right way. We want to do it the biblical way. And God does that in worship. So let's use that pattern. So call to worship, confession, absolution. Well, today I want to talk about the final three parts of worship. That's the consecration, communion, and the commissioning. In consecration, consecration encapsulates a bunch of different things. So this will be probably the heavier of the three topics this morning, uh, but I'll try to keep it simple. Um, the idea of consecration even is kind of, um, it, it doesn't really capture everything that's happening in that part of the worship service. In the, in the Old Testament, there's, there's two words that get translated as consecration. The first one is kodash, kodash. And it means to be set apart as sanctified, to be set apart as holy. And of course, that is a major part of what is happening in worship. We have come to God. He has called us because we are his children. We are baptized. He has, we confess our sins and he forgives us. And then this next step is the process of making us holy. It's that we have been set apart for a, for a duty now. And in worship, it's very precise. Like there are things that God does in worship that are for his people to make them into more like Jesus. The other word that's, that's uh, translated as consecration is as nezer. And we get this, we associate this, this word with Nazarite. And consecration in that sense is that the Nazarite is, is separated apart for not just to be made holy, but to for a service. So a Nazarite was somebody who was set apart for a holy war. And of course, I'm not going to get into all the distinctives of what a Nazarite was, but they had certain distinctives, things they had to abstain from, things they couldn't do, like cut their hair. And part of the hair thing is the sense that it's a crown. So they are, that word Nazar literally means to be crowned. And so Nazarites are crowned, set apart to do a holy work. And that word also is associated with things like a king. A king is nazard. A high priest is nazard. He's consecrated. So there are two aspects of this understanding of consecration. And both of those things are true of us when we come to worship. We are set apart as holy because based on our baptism, based on the work of Christ, we are set apart like that. But we're also set apart for service. We are in a holy war. And so when we come to worship, what we, what we primarily are doing is fighting a holy war. We gather together as an army of saints who are, through our prayers, through our singing, you know, we don't fight with, with guns and swords in, in this way. The spiritual war is fought with our singing and with our prayers. And of course, that's what we're going to see coming up in the consecration. <clears throat> So, again, the call is, is the calling of the baptized, the calling of God's people. We are then confess our sins. We're absolved of those sins. God loves us. He forgives us. And then we come to the consecration. And I, I, there, we could probably define this in many different ways. I'm going to give seven things that consecration, what we do. One is the reciting of God's word. And, and we hear this when the, when the men get up and they read scripture. We, our, 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 our service is scripture saturated. So the reciting of God's word, 
the reciting of the creed. So in that sense, what we're talking about is the, you know, the creed obviously is not word for word scripture, but it is taking scripture and putting it in a different way. And it's kind of a systematic way, but we're still, it's still God's word, but just in a different, different sense. So reciting God's word, reciting the creed, the preaching, and I'll say the hearing of God's word, tithe, it falls under this, singing and prayer. So we have, did I say seven? That's six. Because I put preaching and hearing together. I had seven earlier. I did put, I, I condensed it for the sake of time, which I've now explained it. So now that that time is gone. Um, so I want to begin right off the bat and get this, this part out of the way. I do think it's important, but this is the thing that we can, I'm happy to talk to people more about this later. Um, but family worship, I mean, family worship. So if we're trying to practice consecration and these six, seven things that I just said in our home, the most obvious way to do it is family worship. And so I'll just quickly go through this. And I think many of us do. I mean, it's kind of like a preaching to the choir. We all understand that, that getting together as a family, reading scripture, um, singing, praying, this is important. Um, and again, I want to emphasize family worship does not transcend corporate worship. These things flow out of corporate worship. So family worship is important, but it's not as important. And, it, and, it, and I would say it like this. The, the husbands and fathers, your, your main job is to bring your family to worship. These other things are important, but it must begin on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, bringing your family to worship. But in talking about family worship, um, prayer, Bible, singing. Um, now, I want to add, I mentioned this two weeks ago. I add confession when, I do, when we do our family worship times. And the reason I do that, and again, you can go back. I, I, I talked about this more de- in detail two weeks ago. But the reason I do that is because I want there to, I just want to emphasize confession. I want it to be a part of what we do every single day in the home. I want there to be a practice to where it's, it's as common as everything else that we do in the home. Confessing your sins, quickly forgiving sins. Um, but moving on from that, I want to say this about family worship, and especially for fathers. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so the, the one way you could say this is, you know, keep it simple, stupid, <laughs> you know, the, the, um, do not use this time as an opportunity to pontificate, theologize, preach necessarily. Those times will come as the children grow up. You, you will know, especially if you begin when they're young and even with your, with your wife, even if you don't have kids yet and you, you're beginning this process of family worship, it's a, it is a process. And so if you begin that with sort of this 30-minute exhortation every single time as if you're, you're, you know, like you have to get it all in today, what you're going to do is exasperate everybody. It's not going to be a time of fun, of, of enjoyment, of um, joy. You, you don't want to make family worship this time of like, ah, we got to do family worship. What time is it? Oh, good grief. Like, here we go. You know, next 30 minutes is good. Keep it simple. You know, um, say, say a quick, you know, say a prayer, read a, you know, the simplest that you can do, just 
what I tried to do is hit the, the four things for our family. Sometimes we don't even have time. I mean, it's as simple as can be. Sometimes it, we do get into, you know, as my kids have got older, sometimes we'll have like 45 minute sessions because we're talking about stuff. But that came later as they became teenagers and they became used to the pattern. Early on, it was as simple as say a prayer, read a passage from the Bible, you know, confess, I even confession came later. I didn't even do that early on. That's something I kind of came, kind of thought about later and incorporated. Um, from the very beginning, it was simply just reading, reading our Bible, saying prayer, and then singing. We used to sing this, like we didn't really even sing hymns. I mean, I, we sang like, uh, what was that? <laughs> that song, uh, the King of Glory, the King of Glory comes Sunday. And the kids would like march around the house. And, <laughs> and that was family worship. Like they, they get up and I mean, they're wiggly, they're dancing. And family worship was this fun thing that we did, but it wasn't just fun. You know, it was like, we're giving them Bible. We're teaching them to pray. Um, and we're teaching them about singing. I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so yeah, so if you're beginning at family worship or you're trying to figure out, just keep it simple, just make it consistent, um, and make it joyful. And this is, this is a great opportunity I have found to make connections in the Bible rather than explain the Bible. Now, the Lord providentially brought us, so my understanding of, we started our family and we started doing family worship very, you know, it was inconsistent. We're, we didn't, I just knew we were supposed to be doing something. But about the time we started our, our, young, our oldest child into homeschooling and classical education, I, I was reading about classical education at the same time that I was trying to improve what I was doing in family worship and get better at it. And it dawned on me that, you know, so many of you, if you don't know, like classical education, one of the points of it is to understand this, the trivium. And so the trivium is the sense in the grammar stage. So when children are little, what you want to do is just fill them with information. You don't want to explain it. You just want to give them information and they retain that information, usually it's through song, through chanting, but you just fill their heads with information. Later, the next stage, as they, as they progress into the logic stage, into the rhetoric stage, you know, they build on that. But the, at the beginning, you're just giving them information. Well, that's exactly what God does with his word. The Pentateuch is simply, the, the beginning of the Bible is giving his people all the information. Every pattern in the Bible begins in Genesis. Everything you need to know about the rest of the Bible, you can't understand it as clearly as we should if you don't know the first five books of the Bible. It's all there. And so what I started doing, rather than sort of explaining everything in the Bible, is I would just, we started in Genesis 1. And I knew enough of the Bible at this point to start making connections. So I'd just emphasize things like 40 days. You know, we come to something about 40 days, you know, I'd have the kids point, you know, point it out 40 days. Okay. This is important. Don't know why you're just going to see it later. Make a note of it. Evening and morning, make a point of it. You know, these, these little bits, the Bible is not like, we don't need to explain it. It's God just gives us a pattern there that later when you're getting to the, the parts that, you know, when you're reading scripture and you're like in a little bit, everybody kind of falls off, you know, right around Leviticus and numbers. And it's like, ooh. 
But if you have Genesis and Exodus as your foundation, those things start making sense. You start making these connections. And I'll just share one quick story that the fruit of that. When I, I was at the church in Nashville, I was, um, I was doing the children's uh, Sunday school and we were going through Acts. And we got to the end of Acts and there's the story of, of Paul and he's on the ship and he's going to Rome and he's a prisoner, but he's, but you know, the men respect him, but they're in this, this, uh, storm and the men are going to jump off the boat and get away. And this prisoners are going to die. And the head, uh, 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 centurion on the boat, you know, is telling the men, no, you know, Paul tells him, listen, if these guys leave, we're up, they're dead, stay on the boat and you will be safe. And so the head guy says, okay, everybody, you stay on the boat. And then it says on the 14th day at midnight, Paul gives, you know, they, they break bread and they have wine. And I'm reading this and my daughter, um, she goes, dad, that's, you know, that's the, uh, that's uh, Passover. Like that's, that's the, uh, that's the day of atonement, you know, and, and she's making these connections because the 14th day and, um, and, and the meal and it kind of dawned on me like I hadn't really explained that. I didn't even know it. And I was like, oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that next day I was at work and there was a Lifeway nearby. And so I went to Lifeway and I looked at every commentary. You know, of course, Lifeway is kind of the, you know, the broad evangelical place where we get, you know, all Sunday school lessons and, and Bible and preaching resources there. So I went to their commentary section and looked at every Acts commentary. And of course, there's nothing about that. There's no connection there at all. But my, at the time, 10-year-old, was picking up on that simply because, not because I explained, I didn't even, it didn't even dawn on me, but because we had taken the time to just point out things like numbers and dates and descriptions, like here's trees here, here's water here, what's, you know, just those type of things. She started picking up things in the scripture. And so I think that is a good way to go when you're reading the Bible because it helps you too. I mean, you don't need to be a theologian to do family worship. Just pick out the things that God's already put there for us. So, um, so I'll, I'll finish with this as far as family worship. Pick a time and be consistent. So you could do it anytime. Breakfast, dinner, before bed. If you miss, no big deal. But begin anew the next day. Be intentional with your time. Involve your whole family in it, dad. It's not just you, you know, like start teaching your kid. This is not worship where men are leading as, you know, like there, there are specific qualifications to lead worship, but we're not talking about corporate worship. We're talking about the home. So it's great to involve your kids when they start to read, let them read scripture, have everybody pray, um, sing together, you know, like all these things. It, it, it's great to involve your kids that way. What I typically do is I typically lead it because I've made my family worship a little more liturgical in the sense that there's a pattern there. And so I kind of lead the pattern, but I let them read. I let them pick the songs. They each have a day where they get to pick the song and read the, read the passage. Um, so I make it a family affair. And then finally, um, and, and if you're curious, I did bring mine. And I don't, I'm not, I don't want to pass it out necessarily. And I, I'm happy to share these things with you. This is, this took me, this is years and years and years. This is not something I just was like, oh, you know, I'm smarter than everybody else. I came up with this. I, I think it's great if everybody comes up with their own kind of idea. I mean, because each family's different. But I'm happy to share these things and to kind of give you 
things that I've learned over the years. But, um, but yeah, here's, here's ours. And it's this thick just because we put all our music in here instead. We didn't have a Cantu, so I just put, I printed out music and put it in here. So it's not thick for full of like, you know, like Bible information. It's just songs. But, um, but yeah, so I'm happy to share that with you at some time if you want to reach out to me or, you know, or if you want to look at it afterwards or whatever, it's, it's, I'm, I'm happy to share it. But, but yeah, just take those basic principles and begin there. It can be, just keep it as simple and then go from there. All right. So we're past family worship. Let's talk about God's word in our home. And this kind of includes, uh, the reading of scripture and the creeds. Um, I'll kind of put them all together. Psalm 119, 9 through 16 says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So a couple of different translations use different words, but think about that. I have stored up your word in my heart. That's the goal. That I might not sin against you. Cause and effect. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes, in your law. I will not forget your word. This is the goal of what we're doing in the home. In the same, you know... Uh, as I talked about two weeks ago, emphasizing identity in the home, who they are, who they are in Christ, who they are in relation to you, you're, the way you're, you show affection to them and mimicking the way that our Father shows affection to us. Um, and then, of course, confessing our sins, but soaking in Scripture. And that doesn't really happen if all that they ever get is simply on Sunday you know, or, you know, and this is not applied to our church, but just in general, you know what I'm talking about. If youth group is kind of the way that parents train their kids is let the youth pastor do it, let the youth group do it. That's not going to cause this to happen. They will not have the word stored up in their heart. And so the way you, you do this, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, scripture memory is good. Singing is even better. Because singing is glorified speech. If anything that can be said can be sung. And I think there's a principle there of, of, of again, as I mentioned, with, especially with little kids, something about singing sticks in their heart. Sti- I still, I, I didn't really grow up with that principle, but I can still sing you the presidents of the United States because they taught me in first, second grade a song about the presidents of the United States. You know? um, it sticks with you. The Hebrews memorized the law through chanting and singing. Um, scripture reinforcement during discipline. You know, what does the Bible say about children obeying their parents? So when you're disciplining your child, of course, you have to already taught them. So part of the, the repentance process is using scripture to reinforce these things. Teach your kids what they're there to obey your parents. Long life, you know, God will bless your obedience. So you teach them that. And then you can ask them, are you not acting the way that you're supposed to act? What does the Bible say about this? Repetition leads to memorization. We, we, 
all of you know that just even in our own church service. You've memorized the things that we do every single week. Many of you know the creeds by heart now. Didn't know a creed, what even a creed was before you came to this church. And now you can say the Nicene Creed by heart or the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. That's how my family, like they, we all know the Nicene Creed. And I don't think I ever at one time in the home used it as a, like a teaching. Like we didn't sit around the table trying to memorize it. It was simply week in, week out, just saying it over and over and over again. Um, and of course, so, so God's word works with the creeds, right? God's word is the prime source. We want our children to know, we want our families, we want ourselves to know the God's word. But catechisms and creeds help reinforce these things. And, um, and of course, that's true in the service too. Like the creed is not the center of our worship, but the creed assists in all these other things that we're doing in a scripture-saturated worship service. Um, I don't remember if I said this two weeks ago, but you're welcome to look at this as well. This is a catechism that we use in our family. And I would like to look into more about seeing, I, I know we can get them in little small sample, you know, little things for pretty cheap. Um, we got this when we were at Rich Lust Church in, in Birmingham many years ago. We printed it off. It wasn't in a convenient little pamphlet. But this is his catechism. And I love his catechism better than all the other ones out there because it is about your identity. It's, it's titled, I Belong to God. And so we, we would sit around the table. We haven't got through, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're not even close to being through the whole thing. But the beginning is so important because it's things like, who are you? I'm a child of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? It, be, it means that I belong to him and he loves me. And it goes through this whole process, not beginning with like, sort of systematic theologies of it begins with your identity in the God that has saved you. And, you know, and that's why I love this one. So you're welcome to look at this, um, kind of peruse it and see if it's something you may want to use with your family. Um, above all, remember that these things are tools to reinforce the first two steps, identity and confession. If you are a chaotic home that practices impatience, selfishness, accusation, and keeping long accounts, these tools can actually serve to do the opposite in your family's life. So my point there is Bible memory is really good. It's very important. But if you're doing Bible memory in this very hypocritical atmosphere, what will happen is it will either push, push your family away from it or what it will do is it'll make them like super smart when it comes to the Bible because they'll know all the stuff and then they will turn it and use it against. And you see that happen a lot um, in different, you know, you'll, you'll hear about the kid who, who kind of had the great education, you know, the brilliant education and, and the, you know, the, the Christian classical education. And now they're the biggest opponents against it because really, you, you, if you dig a little bit, you see that in the home, it wasn't anything like what the education, you know, so the education was trying to do one thing. But meanwhile, you know, there's there's this just meanness and, and hypocrisy and and uh, and holding long accounts and not forgiving one another and and uh, just this chaos in the house that is actually working against it. So all you're doing is filling them with like weapons, to, you know, <laughs> against what, what we're aiming to do. You know, it's the wrong way to use it. Um, singing. 
Make a joyful noise. Scripture tells us this numerous times. It tells us this five times in five psalms. You know, or six, Psalm 95 through 100, it says it every single time. Psalm 98, 1 through 4. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness to the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. If we're supposed to do this, let's do this in the home. Singing, especially for dads, gets us out of our comfort zones and makes us vulnerable. And I don't mean that in the squishy way. I mean it in a good way. And I'm saying this from experience too. It's easy for dads to want to do the things like the discipline, you know. And even that, like I'm I'm even saying in the good way. I mean, our our sinful desires are to just be quick to, to discipline and not do the process of what really discipline is supposed to be, which is confessing, uh, restoring, forgiving. But, but we're quick to like preach, you know, we'll get the Bible out and we'll just kind of like hammer home. But singing actually helps, makes us vulnerable. It puts us in an uncomfortable position at first because it's kind of, you know, like not every, some guys are kind of geared that way, I think, but a lot of us guys are not geared that way. We're kind of solemn sometimes, we're kind of stoic. Singing puts us out of our comfort zone there. Singing praise should be as important as teaching and preaching, which, again, comes easier to us. And singing helps to naturally, even if it's bad singing, singing helps to naturally infuse the home with joy. Dads set the tone for the home's atmosphere, the way the pastors do for the church. Enthusiastic joy is not an option, or a character trait. You know, you can't use the excuse that God didn't make me this way. He may have made you, made it harder for you, but you're still required to be joyful in the home and you're still required to sing praise to God. Push through the awkwardness of it. Just do it. And I tell you, you do it a little bit and eventually it becomes second nature and eventually your home becomes a home where singing happens all the time and that makes the home a joyful place to be in for everybody. People want to be in your home because they're, even if you're not singing, there's this like film of singing that's kind of floating, this film of joy in the home. Um, Moving on, hearing. So I mentioned reading. Now I want to talk about hearing. Hearing is commanded over 400 times in scripture. Hearing requires submission and trust. The relationship between talking and hearing um, is, is the difference between you having your, what you're saying things and you sitting and listening to what somebody else is saying. It's about authority, right? It's about giving, you're submitting to authority. You want your family to listen to you, fathers, and even mothers. We were talking about the family and the children. You want, as the authority structure goes up, There ought to be submission. You know, this is not, we're not all equal here. You know, there is a hierarchy. And part of that hierarchy is having, speaking truth and having people listen to you say that truth. Um, And not double check everything that is being said. A father ought to be able to speak to his family 
And of course, a father can do that in a bad way. But ideally, what we're talking about here is a father. You're submitting to a godly father who can speak to his wife or to his children without the children going, let me let me look that up and double check and see what you're saying. And that's kind of true of worship. And again, I'm not saying you do that. I'm just saying for me personally, I've made a habit of actually not. I don't open my Bible in worship. I listen. And I've done that for many years because. I heard somebody else talk about hearing the importance of hearing. Again, the Bible doesn't say read your, you know, read, you know, and, the, and so, and again, I, there's nothing nefarious about it, but there's a sense of, and I have heard people say, you know, we, we read our Bible in church because we want to double check that the pastor's not like he's accurate. Well, that's not the idea. Like the past, the pastor, you're submitting yourself to the man who's preaching the word of God. And there ought to be a submission and a trust there in the same way. That's what the home is. Your children are not, we don't want them to be, well, I need to double check everything my parents are saying because they may not be right. They need to trust you. What is coming out of your mouth, they, often, they ought to believe it. And as they get older, of course, that, that some things may not mix well. You know, They may start to see the hypocrisy or, or, or notice. But when they're children, you want to train and everybody in the home, and this goes for marriages too, you want to begin the process of training you know, the proper response to someone speaking truth to you is to listen and, and act, not to double check everything. So that's all I'll say about that. Um, well, I'll, you know, um, I'll say this uh, first. So because this leads into the next one, I will I will read this scripture here. It says so first Thessalonians five, I'll kind of break it up. I'm going to read the last part of first Thessalonians five first. It says. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. That scripture gets used to say, well, we need to test everything. You know, the Bereans, we have to check and double check everything. But think about this, testing, discerning. How do we discern? Do you come up with all the information on your own? Like when you open your Bible and you're testing everything, where where does your ability to test come from? It's simply just this thing that you have all the knowledge yourself. So you're now the arbiter of what's right or wrong. No, it begins through the discipleship that happened before that. And so in this passage, the idea, you don't begin there. This is at the end of the passage. You don't begin here. But yet many people do begin there. They think, I got to check everything that my pastor says or my teacher says or my parents say, because that's the way we've been taught. But this is at the end of the passage. The beginning of the passage says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself. It begins with respect for authority. You are to submit yourself to authority. And this goes in the church. This also goes in the home. And then this leads into prayer. So that I'll read the middle part of first Thessalonians five. So following the respect for the leaders and for those in charge, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good into one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, comma, pray without ceasing, comma, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Pray in the little things, pray in the big things, pray in the blessings and pray in the trials. 
pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean that there's this constant, you know, like you go, you know, like a desert father and you'd go off and you spend all your day alone praying. It's just the, the idea of praying without ceasing is get into the habit of praying for every, every, all the good things, all the little things, all the bad things. Not just when big events happen, but in, just make a habit of praying for everything. In the same way that we should be quick to repent and forgive, we should be quick to prayer. Set a pattern and the example in the home that prayer is the first response to everything that you do. We try to begin in our home, we try, we try to begin the day with prayer, and then we end the day with prayer. And so we, to that end, we have, so one of the things that's in my book here is I've, I have these prayer lists. And so each night we have a thing like, so we're TRC families are, um, no, our family is Monday night. So on Monday nights we, we pick, have everybody pray in the family, they pick somebody you know, uh, grand, Mimi and Grandpa or whatever, we pray for that, pray for that person. On the next night, it's, T, it's our TRC families. Missions, churches, government. Um, because it helps remind us that there are other things to pray for. It's not just our immediate things in our life. There's things outside of us that we're praying for. And what it does is it helps build a habit. And what I do is I give each child an opportunity to pray. You pick one person on the list, you keep it simple. Everyone prays. And, and this type of prayer is a spontaneous prayer. It's not a, uh, I don't have it laid out for them. But I have quickly learned that if you, even spontaneous prayers are, you know, they fall into a pattern. You know, they begin saying the same thing every week. So with that in mind, there's nothing wrong with spontaneous prayer. There's nothing wrong with red prayers. But the point is, is that they, are, they can both be used well. And the fact is, is that the best spontaneous prayers are the people that have spent many, many, many years learning the skill of how to pray. Otherwise, you get the, uh, well, Father, Father, I pray, Father, that, well, Father, that, Father, that, you know, it's awkward. So what we want to do is practice how to pray. And, and written prayers are a great way to do that. Um, in fact, that's kind of the, the pattern even in our church. Like we want... The prayers that the men say up front to be written out beforehand. And not because a prayer where they say, uh, 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 a lot is not a prayer that God will not hear and answer, but it is a, it's a way of improving and being skilled at prayer, building up on it. But of course you, you begin with what you have, what you can do. You know, you begin down here and you strive, you know, it's like prayers, and, and most, pe- most people would say, oh, it's not really a good prayer unless it just comes from the heart. But they don't believe that about other things in their life. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't believe that about, you know, the, if you're a welder, it's like, yeah, well, you know, my best welding's done, you know, at the very, you know, when I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, it's, <laughs> no, you, you improve on it. You, you learn the skill of prayer. And the best way to do that is through the repetition and doing, just doing it over and over. Um, so we have a number of written prayers that we use. Um, during our dinner, our meals, we, we use this prayer, give us grateful hearts, our Lord. Um, and, and the kids know that one. Our evening prayer is, is right before bed every night. We say this uh, light in our darkness prayer. Um, it has some scripture that I've added into it as a way to kind of reinforce scripture. They all, you know, we know everybody here, our Father who art in heaven. Um, I came up with, I not came up with, I got it from the Book of Common Prayer. 
but it fit in well with our homeschooling day. So our morning prayer is kind of this long, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say start out with this, but with our kids and the place they are in life, I found this, this prayer here, which is kind of long, but it like just nails everything that we're trying to do in our life. It's a wonderful little prayer. Um, and we begin it as often as we can every morning. You know, we're getting to that stage where there's kind of like this kids are at the age. We're going in different directions and things don't always line up. But we do the best we can. And so we often get together just for five minutes and say this prayer in the morning. And I'm going to low on time, so I won't read it. I was going to read it. You're welcome to look at it later. Um, let me quickly say something about tithe. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The attitude that is required in the giving of our tithe can be cultivated in the home. And here's some ways to do that. Let other, and this doesn't even have to do with money. Let others have their way. Teach your kids to let their sisters have, or their brothers have their way. Let them get what they want sometimes. Give up your desires. Begin there. As they get older and they start making their own money, um, let them buy things for others with their own money. Don't just, you know, there was a, there's a sense of, well, I got my money and I'm saving it for this so mom and dad can buy the birthday gift. No, let them buy the birthday gift for their friend. Take others out to eat. And this is something that parent, you know, we can, we can do that. We can take others out to eat and buy them food. We can, uh, <clears throat> um, the principle of saving is good, but we must also train in the principle of selfless giving. Our money is a blessing to us so that it may be a blessing to others. And again, outside of money, you know, just the giving of money, hospitality reinforces this in the home. Especially be mindful of not expecting giving in return. Like, you know, we invited these people over for dinner and they haven't invited us over. Or, you know, that kind of understanding, you don't want to do that. Just give without any expectation and be extra thankful when it's returned to you. You know, when someone invites you over... Just be extra thankful about it. Don't say about time, you know. But even if you say it on your brother, like the family will pick up on these things. It's not just the words you say. There's a, there's a demeanor that goes along with it. This is, goes for our attitude to God's blessings and trials too. Be thankful, not complaining, even when tough stuff happens. We have, I like this example in our own home when our, uh, many years ago when our oldest was like, one and we were I was we were in seminary and so we were living my parents had moved up there we'd had our first kid so they like my dad retired and moved up to where we were and we lived in the basement apartment of this this house so we'd eat dinner with them every night and he'd come home from he'd come from his job or whatever he was doing and and um he'd he'd be his the thing he would always do like oh me you know just every day oh me and um he wanted to be grandpa but he was oh me because our daughter, that's what she associated with him. So he, he had already been called grandpa at, at his job. Like people called him grandpa. So he was going to be grandpa. And he was oh me because he would sit down at the table and just kind of oh me. Things are just going so tough and go. And he doesn't do that anymore. It's, it's kind of this funny thing. And he's now grandpa. We, we've, 
we've changed it, but, but, uh, but it was it, just his demeanor and the way he approached these things. The, the, the one-year-old picked up on it and said, oh, this guy's name's O'Me, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's our, uh, you know, just let that be a lesson. <laughs> so um, they'll let me move on with little time we got left. Um, communion. There's a lot I could say about communion. Um, I do want to point out, I won't read the whole passage, but if you read Acts 2, I'll just read two verses. It says, um, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we're talking about the early church after Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is referring to the worship. So they were gathering for worship and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So preaching, teaching, uh, breaking of bread and prayer. So they were gathering for worship, breaking of bread. The same word used later when it says, and day by day, they attended the temple together. So they, they attended together and then they broke bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I just want to point out that there's a connection there then between the, the breaking bread in worship with the body and then this fellowship that happens outside of that and the breaking of bread there. And while they are two separate things, again, we talked about this before, like we don't do communion in the home. Communion is with the body. So when we gather for corporate worship, that's a thing we do as the bride of Christ gathered together to break bread there, to eat at the Lord's table with God. But there is a connection. There is an analogy there to what we do in the home. Um, and so the analogy works like this. I want to use that as a way to understand the, this, what, what is happening in communion. Um, the, so I'm actually kind of almost reversing. Instead of using liturgy to inform that, I want to use the home to kind of talk about what happens in, in worship. You know, the analogy of the family helps to inform our communion practices. Who comes to the table in your home? All who are invited, just people just kind of like bust into your door and say, I'm, I'm having dinner tonight, you know. I'm make, I'm, no, it's, it's your dinners are whoever is invited to your table. We invite others to our table and then feed them. And this, this doesn't even, we're not even talking about neighbors. Like this is your home. This is true of just you and your children, your wife, your husband's wives and children. We invite others to our table and then feed them. Outsiders do not initiate meals in our home. So even if you have this policy of like everybody's welcome, anybody can show up, you've made that policy. So if strangers do come to your home out, out of the blue and just walk in, you've instituted that policy. You know, if, if you haven't instituted that policy and that happens, something else, you know, is going on there, you know, and you're going to do something about it. Um, we don't feed. So another thing we don't. We don't feed others only when they say, I'm hungry, or when they only understand what is taking place in the meal. Uh, that's not how a meal functions. A meal is about the celebration and the fellowship, like celebrating God's good gifts. That should be the way that we, un- part of how we understand what's happening at God's table. Instead, we, we theol- theologize about all the different things that are happening in communion, when really the practice, we don't practice that in the home. When we have meals, the meal is all about the fellowship. It's, it's about peace. In the, old, in the Old Covenant, and I talked about this the very first week, communion, the where we get our communion from in the, in the sacrificial system, is called the sacrifice of peace. That's when everybody ate of the sacrifice. 
Everybody partook. Um, you know, a pastor once told me that you don't ever do tough conversations over a meal. Like meals are meant for peace. Meals are meant for fellowship. If you have to deal with something tough, maybe go grab a coffee or, or go someplace, you know, like an office, someplace else. Save meals for peaceful gatherings. Um, and I think that's, that's wise. I mean, that's what we want our meals in our home to be. And that's what Jesus does in, in, when he feeds us. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's not the time to withdraw and think about our sin. That's what confession already did. The, the communion meal is the time that we celebrate that we get to eat at God's table. He says, come and dine with me. That's what the communion meal is, and that's what our homes should be. Um, Jesus says, do this as my memorial. And, and we, we, we often hear the phrase, do this in remembrance of me. But that phrase is actually, do this as my memorial. Our, our participation in the communion meal reminds God to act, to keep, to keep covenant. Obviously, he's going to, he always keeps his promises, but, the, but what is happening there is a, is a memorial. We, we participate in communion, and he, he acts accordingly because we are his people. He keeps covenant with us through nourishing our body, through the body, through his bride. He, he is perfecting his bride through the meal. And in a similar way, our family meals, including any guests that join us, this is a symbol of the purpose of the family in the world. We are building up the family to be a place of peace, to instruct, commune, have fellowship, nourish, celebrate God's good gifts. Again, you don't feed your child only when your child says, okay, I'm, I'm seriously hungry now. Can I please eat? You don't do that. You know when they're hungry and you feed them. You, as a parent, determine what they need and you give them the good food that they need so that they can grow up and be big and strong. That's what communion is. Finally, let me, uh, let me close real quick with the commissioning. Um, Matthew 28, the, the sin, sending out. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Notice that they first worshiped, and then they were sent out. That, that part that we all associate with the, with the, uh, with the Lord's, you know, go and baptize, begins with, said so they, they gathered on the mountain and they worshiped. So there's a cause and effect there, right? You, you do one first and then the other follows. Sometimes we mix that up, in, you know, especially in our evangelical world, in our missions, we've sometimes gotten that out of balance. But it begins with worship and then mission flows out of that. What we have here is, a, is primarily, so there's two things going on. First, it's a reversal of Genesis 10 and 11, which is the Genesis 10 is the table of nations. We get this long list of all the nations. You know, Israel was, was chosen out of this. Israel was separated, was holy. But there was these, all these 70 nations. And then, of course, Genesis 11, what these nations do. We have the Tower of Babel. So what we have is Jesus kind of reversing this. Of course, Pentecost is the beginning of that. And, and I won't get into that, but of course the languages and the difference, you can compare these two things.
But the book of Acts is the story of the immediate fulfillment of this command. They begin in Jerusalem, they go out to Judea, Samaria, and then to the Gentile nations. But how do you make disciples? You know, is, is it really just you're a Christian now, so go, go to the, uh, the foreign country and, you know, just preach the word? Is that how that happens? Is that the primary way that happens? Well, the scripture says baptizing and then teaching them to obey all of the commandments. The whole word, it says. That takes a lot of time and effort. You know, Acts is the narrative of what happens after Pentecost. The rest of the Bible are the letters on how to do it. And notice this. Every single letter in the New Testament says something about the home, the family, children, to some degree. You know, it says a lot, if you get broad with it, about how a Christian is supposed to act. But even if we narrow it down to family things, every book of the Bible... Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5 and 6, Philippians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 2, Philemon, which is about a slave, is about a household slave, somebody in the home. So even Philemon is hitting this. Hebrews 12 and 13, James 1, 1 Peter 3, 1 John 2, 2 John 1. Third John is the only one is kind of like it's this tiny little letter. And even there, you could, you could stretch it. But, but the point being that every letter addresses how to, how to manage the home as a Christian family in this new covenant world. And, um, you know, I was going to read Galatians 5. But I think we're, I'm, I'm, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just say, of course, it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And... Um, I won't read this whole thing, but of course we're talking it's in Galatians five at the end is the difference between what the flesh does and then what the fruits of the spirit are. And in Christ, God has given us through his spirit, the tools to take dominion of this world and disciple the nations. But in this passage about the flesh fighting with the fruits of the spirit, with the spirit, he says this, he says, there is a warning in the middle, right smack dab in the middle. It says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice he's talking to the brothers. He's talking to Christians when he says this. So he's saying, he's not saying you have the spirit. So now go, it's like a superpower that you have acquired. So now go do, go change the world. That's not what he's saying. He's warning them and saying, yes, you now have everything you need. You have the fruits of the spirit. But you also have the flesh and it's warring. And in order to overcome that, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of prayer. It's going to take a lot of repetition practicing these things. Um, It says our flesh wars against the spirit to keep us from doing the things we want to do. And this is true. We see it in our lives every single day. Right. So there are no super Christians out there. We are all struggling. Bearing fruit takes time. Some things can be immediately evident, but discipleship is more than just getting someone to say the sinner's prayer. You know, that's the difference between the, you know, the, the, wonderful, the original Star Wars trilogy versus the ones that just came out recently. You know, what's the difference between the Jedis? You know, Luke is a Jedi with the Force, but the whole trilogy is about him building up the skill. He, he is a Jedi, but he must develop the skill to get there. And then you have the new series where immediately, what was her name? 
Ray has, has, she can just defeat everybody because she's the great, you know, it's like she has the force and immediately she's skilled at it. You know, um, God, God gave Adam trees with fruit when he placed him in the garden. But Adam was also given the task of tending the garden. Before the fall, Adam was still charged to grow and mature. Think about that. We, we sometimes have this view of what perfection was, you know, before the fall. But even before the fall, Adam was required to grow, to mature. He was supposed to be moving in a direction, not staying the way he was. So if this is true of, of before the fall, Adam before the fall, how much more true is this for us after the fall? Like Adam, we have access to God through the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that we are not required to cultivate our gifts through, um, it, it means that we are required to cultivate our gifts through weekly worship, daily repentance and forgiveness, prayer, and obedience. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.